That's that enthusiasm I was talking about right there. Uh, as a boy, I, I hope you know what Cracker Jacks are. That's my start this morning. I, I don't know if people know what those are anymore. The, uh, as a boy, I loved Cracker Jacks. That was my, if I had some money to go to the store and buy something sweet, I'd get a box of Cracker Jacks. I, I love that uh, caramel-coated popcorn and peanuts. And, and when I was a little boy, we had uh, prizes in those boxes. A uh, little cardboard box, and you tear the top off, and you knew down in there, you guys know what I'm talking about, there's a prize down in there. And in the old days, there were some, you know, I mean, when you're poor, you, a toy's a toy, a prize is a prize. We looked forward to the prize, no matter how cheesy it might have been. You, you, you wanted to get in there and see if you got a, you, sometimes it was a little joke book, which, who wanted that? But sometimes there was stuff in there. And the one that we always wanted as little boys was the magnifying glass. Now, it was plastic, but it worked, okay? And you, you guys know, if you live my life, you, you get it. And we'd get that magnifying glass out, and we, boys like us, and you just have to figure out what that means, figured out that you could hold that thing over a piece of paper, or an insect, or a black cat firecracker fuse, we used to light firecrackers with them, or a bottle rocket. You could focus the energy of the sun, and if you focus the sun's energy, we discovered without a science textbook that focused energy made things happen. Fun things happen. Uh, heat and friction and all kinds of explosion and fire and smoke and... Uh, we used uh, old dead leaves, and we'd pile them up and get that thing going, and in a few minutes, a little tendril of smoke would begin to go up, and a little black dot would form on a little dried leaf, and fire would begin to spread across the backyard. Great fun. Uh, you could accelerate it with unleaded... Anyway, we learned all kinds of stuff. Let, let me take it a little more practically. Educators, and there's many of you in this room, educators understand that a child must have focus in order to learn no focus no learning as a matter of fact a child who can't focus we would say about such a child they have a learning disability and we can use modern medication now to help you focus and that's used uh, uh, broadly in America now uh, both with adults at work a lot of adults can't focus in the conference room at work and uh, are, are on uh, uh, medical assistance to help focus the adults. Uh, a lot of young people are as well because if you can't focus, it's very hard to function. It's very difficult to learn. Uh, I have labored very hard for the last uh, more than two decades, almost three, uh, to write sermons that will hold your attention knowing that I speak every Sunday to all different age groups all over the world are hearing the messages at all different education levels with all kinds of attention span issues. Hopefully every once in a while I succeed at writing something that will captivate and hold your attention long enough that the biblical principles can get inside and begin to work on uh, rewiring and, and transforming you to be more like Christ. Uh, we train our discipleship group leaders to keep their disciples focused. Keep them focused. We're using tools 
uh, books, material that helps keep you focused, helps keep you accountable, and let me say it different way, helps keep you moving forward. So you don't fall by the wayside, so you don't start and not finish, so that you stay with it. Because we lose spiritual momentum if we lose our focus. So let me ask you, as always, to self-assess. Uh, I'm not here to judge you. You can self-assess this morning. And here's what I want you to ask yourself in self-assessment. What distractions have come into your life recently that might have turned your attention from the mission of Christ? What distractions might have come into your life in the last few months, last year, this year, recently? What distractions have come into your life that have got you all focused on that thing and really have completely stolen your focus from the mission of Jesus Christ? Uh, this morning I'll try to cover the, some of the middle section of the book of Nehemiah. There's several valuable lessons in 6, 7, 8, and 9 right here in the middle of the book. And these lessons are pivotal. They're valuable lessons for us this morning they're worthy of your attention for the next few minutes first of all let me teach you about the power of a focused life the power of a focused life this is something you can begin this week to have a powerful and focused life let me show you what nehemiah did nehemiah 6 1 when the word came to sanballat tobiah and gisham the arab and the rest of our enemies these are the bad guys. Nehemiah said, when my enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. Now, he doesn't mean me personally. He means us, all of us. Uh, his team of builders, men and women, young and old, all kinds of vocations. Everybody's building that wall uh, as fast as they can, working from their home outwardly. When they heard that I had built the wall and not a gap was left in the wall. They've closed all the gaps now. Though at that time I had not set the doors in the gates. You got the middle picture? The whole city wall is rebuilt, but where the gates go, there's just an opening. The hinges are being put on. The doors are being built. The gates are being built out of timber. And in a few days, they'll get the gates hung. But the wall is up. The enemy said it couldn't be done. That even if a fox, uh, even if a kitten walked across their feeble wall, it would fall down. Do you remember that? But it wasn't their wall. They saw it as God's wall, so they worked diligently, and now the wall is up. Now, here's what I learned from this. The power of a focused life. Everybody's been telling them they can't do it. So they just went out starting at their home with their family and started doing it. And guess what? After doing it for 52 days, they're done. It just took hard work, sifting through the rubble, rolling up your sleeves, elbow grease, I'm not sure what metaphors to use on you, the old can-do attitude, they just went and did it, put their nose to the grindstone, and everybody worked together as one team. Nehemiah, here's what he did right, he kept himself and those around him focused on the goal of getting this wall up. And because they stayed focused, they accomplished their mission, the wall is up. So let me say several things about a focused life that you can adopt this week. Focused people know their goal. Focused people know their goal. Uh, for example, in the Bible, Moses knew that his mission, his assignment from God, was to deliver the people from 
Pharaoh, get them out of Egypt and take them to Mount Sinai. That was his mission, bring them to Sinai. Now at Sinai, he'll get new marching orders about the promised land, but his mission was to deliver the people and get them to Mount Sinai where God could make a covenant, give them the law, and institute worship of God once again. That was Moses' mission in life. Joshua had crystal clarity on what his mission was. His mission was to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and go occupy the promised land. Esther was crystal clear on her mission to deliver the Jews from destruction. Who knows if God has raised you up for a moment just like this. She said, if I die, if I perish, you remember, then I perish. But I'm going to go in here and give it my best shot to save my people because I think that's my mission from God. Ezra has a mission to rebuild the temple. They got it up. They got it going. Nehemiah is focused on a mission to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. That's all this book's about, really, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Just this thing, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to keep everybody focused on it. I notice when we get to the New Testament, I find a very similar thing. The Apostle Paul wants to go win the Jews to Christ, and God says, No, Asia is not your field. I'm taking you to Europe, and Europe is your field. And I want you to win the Gentiles to Christ. I think you're perfectly made for this mission. I've prepared you for this mission. I want you to go win the Gentiles of Europe to Christ. And you know what? Paul eventually gets it. And then he even says in his writings, I know exactly what God's called me to do. And I'm going to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And you find that Paul, even when he's writing the book of Romans and and some of the other writings, he's wanting to go beyond where the gospel has gone. He's wanting to go to Spain, to Tarshish. He's wanting to go to Great Britain. He's wanting to keep going. You say, why? Because God said, Europe's my field. And he's like, I'm going to go with all my might, and I'm going to go, go get him. I find the same characteristic in Jesus Christ. How many times he said, I've not come for the well, I've come for the sick. He said, I came uh, to seek and to save that which was lost. He seems to have perfect clarity on what he's here to do. I find that Jesus is the the most focused person uh, that I've ever uh, read about in John chapter 6, verse 38. He said, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Everything he did was focused on completing a mission that his father had assigned to him for his life. Now, here's what it means to us. As a church, we have to make sure we understand what our mission is. As a church, we have a mission, we have a mission statement that has been given to us by Jesus Christ himself after the resurrection. He looks at his church and he says, here is my mission for you. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them the Bible, teach them what I've showed you, baptize them. You go, that is your mission To make disciples of all nations. God has a goal for you. And until you pursue that goal. It will always feel like there's something missing in your life. You may achieve success in vocation. Or in relations. Or or in promotion. Or in popularity. But until you find Christ's mission for your life. And you get on that mission. Of making disciples for the Savior. It's always going to feel like something's just not right in your life. Always just something's a little off, 
or there's a little something missing, or I'm trying to serve God, but something just doesn't seem like it's quite right. This is what it is. It's that acceptance and pursuit of the mission of God. Focused people know their goal. Do you know your goal, church? Go and make disciples of all nations. That is why we buy Kindles, and that is why we disciple at our kitchen table. Because we know the mission of Jesus Christ to make disciples. Focused people are not easily distracted. I almost, when I wrote this as a, as a point in my notes, I almost said, well, duh. That's what focus means. But I think it's worthy of pausing here for a moment. Focused people are not easily distracted. And I discover that distractions are a constant struggle in the Christian life. We go good for a while, then some distractions come into our life, and we just kind of, hmm, for Jesus, cool off. And then we'll get on revival, and we'll go for a little bit, and then some distractions will come, and, and we'll, we'll cool off. Focused people are not easily distracted. And you need to know that there is an enemy that does not want you to accomplish the goal that God has for you. And he'll distract you. You'll find that the, the world is great about distracting you from the important things that God has. They tried to distract Nehemiah from his mission. It's really what chapter 6 and 4, this is really what it's about right here in the middle. Let me read to you. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 2. Sanballat and Gisham, these are the bad guys, sent the message to Nehemiah. And here's their quote. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. It's an ambush. They're going to try to, they got snipers. They got, they got, uh, they got people watching. It's, it's, it's like a spy thriller, what's happening. They're trying to draw him out of Jerusalem and get him out here to a different place. And if they can get him, they're going to get him in the crossfire. And they're going to take him out. And they're going to derail the mission by, by really chopping off the head that's driving the, the, the force. They were scheming to harm me. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. This is one of the most famous statements in the whole book of Nehemiah. So brace yourself. He sent the message to them trying to draw him out of Jerusalem. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. It's one of the most famous lines in the whole book. In the old KJV, I think it reads, I am doing a great work and I will not come down. I am doing a great work and I will not come down. I am carrying on a great project. I've got a mission from God and I don't have time for you jackwagons to distract me from the mission that God has given me. I have discovered that the whole world spends way too much time meeting. Now, I worked in a big corporation, Fortune 500 company, for a decade. You know what we did every day? We met. <laughs> I mean, we met. I wonder if anybody was doing any work, because a whole lot of people were doing meetings. Well, now that is work, I get that. But there's a whole lot of meeting going on. Uh, I've, I, I, for decades, have run in with pastors now. Pastors spend way too much time meeting with other pastors. And meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting and meeting. And you wonder, is anybody making disciples? Everybody's meeting. Now, just, I'm not trying to be, a, you know, uh, just an anti-everything guy. I, I just want to say to you, there's a whole lot of talk that goes on and not a whole lot of work that goes on in the world. When all is said and done, more is said than done. 
That's my philosophy, okay? That's what I'm discovering. Now, they're trying to get Nehemiah to stop working, come out of the city. They really want to ambush him. But his reply is this famous reply, I can't come down, I can't come to the meeting because the work I'm doing is too great. What I'm doing is so important that I don't have time to meet with you big shots, you VIPs. Well, what are you doing? I'm building a wall. Well, that doesn't sound like it. Well, it's God's wall, and it's what he's called me to do. So to me, it's a big deal. And i got to get this project finished. I'm doing a great work, and I will not, I cannot come down. Let me say it in other words. Nehemiah refused to be distracted. Now, this is something I also noticed in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, and when, when, when you think about Jesus being distracted from the cross and being distracted from making disciples and the mission that God had for him, a lot of times when Jesus was uh, being pulled in different directions, it was those close to him. It was his own disciples distracting him. Let me read the classic incident, Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> That's classic, isn't it? Can you imagine just, Jesus, sit down, I'm going to tell you a thing or two. And, just, uh, and he, Peter begins to scold Jesus, never, Lord. Jesus said, I've got to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer many things and die. And Peter's like, no way, then you're not going to Jerusalem. No way, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is famous now. You know what's about to happen next. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, while looking at Peter. For you are a stumbling block to me. You, have in mind the con you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only the concerns of man, merely human concerns. Now, this is hard for me to say to you, but it's so true. So please take it with grace. Sometimes those you love, family, friends, close friends, people you trust and admire, will try to distract you from the mission of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean you stop loving them. It just means that you stay focused because focused people are not easily distracted. When Jesus turned to Peter and rebuked Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, Jesus was saying, quit trying to distract me through the voices of those who are close to me. Satan, I rebuke you. You quit talking through Peter. You know I love Peter. He's my disciple, and I, I love him. I die for him. I will die for him. But Satan, I rebuke you. You quit talking through the voices of those who I love and those who are close to me. Quit trying to distract me by tugging on my heartstrings with the people that are near and dear to me. Now, I'm not saying treat your friends and relatives badly, poorly. I'm just saying don't let anyone distract you from the mission of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been distracted through hurt. I find this a lot in ministry. That people have become distracted from the mission of Christ through past discouragement or because of their own past sins or because of past hurts. Uh, the closest thing I can think of in the Bible to that type of scenario would be the Apostle Paul. Paul had a lot of baggage. Uh, he had a lot of baggage. He had murdered people for his religion. I mean, he had a lot of baggage, okay? 
uh, and his baggage was so extreme that he had to figure out how to deal with it. And he showed us how to deal with it with laser beam focus. The Apostle Paul teaches us this, Philippians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken, I've not arrived to have taken hold of it. I, I've not achieved it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and straining towards what is ahead of me, I press on. You say, well, what about your baggage? Yeah, forgetting that (laughs) and looking forward in my life, I press forward and I want to forget the baggage and I want to remember the focus and the calling of Christ and I'm going to press forward, straining for what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I'm just trying to encourage you this morning to get your focus back and start saying this morning from this invitation forward as you go into the week, this one thing I do. It's a very biblical approach. This one thing. That doesn't mean you're not going to be a multitasker, but it means one thing's going to be the dominant thing in your life, and that's living for Jesus Christ and for his mission. Church, everything we do is measured by our mission. And when it comes to mission, good is the enemy of best. Don't get distracted with doing good things. Stay focused on the very best thing. We are going to be a church on mission. And our mission is reaching the world by making disciples, one disciple at a time, and teaching those disciples how to make more disciples for Jesus Christ. Stay focused. Do not get distracted. Because focused people finish. This is something I love about the examples in the Bible. If you are a born-again child of God this morning, then you have inherited the legacy of a finisher. Are you part of God's family? All right, part of your spiritual DNA is to be a closer. You're a finisher. You're not a starter and a fall-by-the-waysider. If you're God's child, you've inherited the legacy of finishing what you start. Jesus said in John chapter 17, Father, I've brought you glory upon the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And tomorrow he goes to the cross, just like that. Listen, it was Paul that said in 2 Timothy to his disciple Timothy, Timothy, this is the legacy that I'm passing to you. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You're my disciple. You have the DNA of a finisher. Be a finisher. Nehemiah in the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed. They said it couldn't be done at all. That a fox would knock it down. That a kitten whisker brushing against it would knock it over. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul. And they finished the wall in how many days? Well, I thought it couldn't be done. A lot of things can be done that the world doesn't believe can be done. And it can be done in record time if people have a mission and a focus and are willing to roll up their sleeves and get to it. I believe that the best days of this church are ahead and you can do a whole lot more than you think you can. Listen, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. You have a divine mission that is not man-made, that is God-ordained. You are to be living images of Jesus Christ. And when you align yourself with God and the power of God is flowing through your life, you can do whatever God wants you to do. I still believe it. I believe in supernatural 
things being accomplished by the church of Jesus Christ. So I want to say to you this morning, focused people finish. Put your hand to a work. You say, well, I tried discipleship and I just kind of fizzled out. Okay, get back on the horse. Let's get back to it. Let's figure out how to re-engage. Or maybe you're the disciple maker. You say, well, I tried to make disciples and my disciples flaked out. Yeah, that happens. That happens. And I'll tell you why it happens. Because we're discipling people who are spiritual infants. It's the parent that has to stay focused. Infants never will stay focused. So you got a lot of love and a lot of care and a lot of patience and a lot of prayer and, and, and a lot of milk. But listen, stay with it. We'll get to some solid food. We'll get to transformation in life. We will raise up a generation of spiritually mature people who can raise up spiritually mature people. You will see it happen before your eyes. So now they got the wall up, record time, 52 days. That's six and seven. Watch how fast we're going now. Chapter eight. So chapter eight is about the revival that was needed and the revival that happened after they got the wall up. So let's talk about this morning for a minute a spiritually renewed life. Because I think every one of us in the room, listen, I, I don't know how you approach Sunday, but I approach every service as a moment for my own spiritual renewal. Uh, I, I, you know, it's almost for me like I rededicate my life to Christ every week. Now, maybe I'm a bigger sinner than the rest of you. I don't know. Maybe I've got more issues than you. It's very likely. I've got maybe I've my baggage. I don't know what it is. But I find that almost every week I need to get on my face before God and say, God, if I haven't told you today, I love you. I'm yours. Can we just wipe the slate? Let me put me back on my feet and let me start again. And this is going to be a better week than last week. Now, that's about the way I operate. This week's going to be better than last week. God, I, I know I let you down some last week. All right, I'm going to do better this week with your help and your power and your patience. God, I'm going to focus. I'm going to be kinder. I'm going to reflect Christ more. But I need your, that's about what my prayers look like. And it's almost weekly. It's almost daily for me to have constant spiritual renewal with God. So here's what I want to say to you. See, the job is finished. The wall's up. And typically what happens is then the church goes, ah. Oh, and lethargy starts to creep in very quickly. They're safe. They're secure. And, and now we don't have to be as focused. And now, let me just say it frankly, there's a spark missing in this congregation, in this community, after they get the wall up in Nehemiah chapter 8. The wall's up, and they're like, yay! Just like that. It's like a big event that fizzles, and it's not quite what you thought it would be. And now they're just like, you know, there's something missing. We've got a temple, but no presence of God here. We've got a wall, but, yeah, okay, well, what does it really mean to be God's people? We don't really have a mission now that the wall is built. And I may be describing your spiritual life right now. You see, you, you're saved, and your spouse is saved, and your kids are saved, and your career's going fine, and you're not struggling financially like you once did, but you've lost your spark for God somewhere along the way and you wake up some days and when you think of God you're just like yeah and when you think about church you're like yeah maybe not when you think about giving and worship and and all yeah you say what is that well what that is is something that happens to all of us repeatedly in our spiritual journey 
We are not unique. It happened to Peter and Paul. It happened to Nehemiah. It happened to everybody. And it's just a thing that happens that you need constant spiritual renewal. It's like you have to keep putting fuel in your car. You have to have constant supply. You have to have a constant spark. You have to have a constant something in your life every so often that relights the fire and gets you fired up. Uh, it's something to do with our human wiring, I think, because we do it with everything, honestly. We get gung-ho about, you know, being keto and going to the gym, and, and then about a week later, we've lost it. We get all fired up about, I'm going to clean out my house and get organized, and about a week later, you can't find anything, the house is a wreck. And you get all fired up about, I'm going to, you, you know what I'm saying. We, we are very hot and cold on a lot of things in life, and it's something about the way humans are wired. Now, I don't want to give a psychology lesson, but spiritually what it means is this you need to have the fires relit constantly and that's okay as long as you know that about yourself then constantly work with God and align yourself with God and say God relight the fires you say well how does that happen I'm glad you asked if you want to experience spiritual renewal it almost always begins by re-engaging with the Bible Almost always, every historic revival that's affected a nation or a community or a church typically had to do with people connecting back with the Word of God. So that is an element that's almost, uh, you'll find it in almost every revival you read about or whenever you hear somebody talk about, man, you know, I was just meh spiritually. Okay, well, you're on fire for God now. What happened? Well, somebody approached me and said, we need to get in the Word together and start discipling. We sat down once a week, and they were making me accountable to be in the Word and helping me memorize Scripture. Yeah, you re-engage with the Bible. And re-engaging with the Bible is the very first step to get the spark back spiritually in your life. Now watch how it happens in the book of Nehemiah. They're just like, meh. Watch them light the fire. Nehemiah 8.1. And all the people came together as one. Community meeting in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Now, they don't have a completed Bible like you. So go get the Bible. Go get the book of the law. And Ezra, you're the priest. Come out here, and, and we want you to bring the book of the law, which the Lord commanded Israel. Verse 3, and he read it aloud, Ezra did, from daybreak until noon. That's quite a service. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So in your mind, I want you to see the picture. They built a wooden pulpit, it says, platform. And all the people poured out into the square. They're in the city walls. And they said, you know, there's no spark here. As a matter of fact, we don't even know what the word of God says. So how could we be good followers of God? read us the word of god nobody has individual bibles so they bring out the the books of moses and ezra begins to proclaim they want to hear tell us what god says now this is the key do you have a hunger for the word of god one of the things you'll find about people who were able to experience revival is they relit their passion for the word of god now David's a train wreck. I'll be honest with you. As a young man, he's heart following God. And as an older man, he's a complete train wreck spiritually. Train wreck as a husband and a father and, and in many areas. But one thing David was successful at, and God said, you're calling the apple of my eye. 
is that David had a passion for God that he was able to rekindle over and over and over again throughout his adult life. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 10. David said, God's words are more desirable than gold, even than finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even the honey dripping from the comb. David said, the word of God to me is something that's precious and sweet, and I love it, and I can't do without it. Job, another ancient, ancient follower of God. Job said that God's word was more precious to me, more needful to me than the food that I eat. Job chapter 21, uh, 23, verse 12. I have not departed from God's commands, but I have treasured his words more than my daily food. Now, I treasure my meals. Something starts happening about now during the day, and you're like, oh, yeah, about 20 minutes here. We're going to be going to, you know, yeah. Your body tells you it's time to expect, want, and treasure that food. Job said, I've built the same expectancy into my life about the word of God. Listen, I I want you to hunger to come together and let's open the word of God like this and see what God wants to say to us. Hunger for that every week. Cherish that. Long for that. A lot of experiencing constant revival has to do with your own attitude in approaching the Bible. If you approach the Bible as some ancient boring book, you're not going to get much from it. If you approach the Bible, well, look, look how in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. David said, going to the word of God and opening it to me is like going on a treasure hunt. I just dig in there, let the dirt fly, rummage around in there and see what I can find. And I end up finding something precious and powerful and special to me when I engage with the word of God. So I want to challenge you. The people came to the worship service hungry to hear from God I want to challenge you to adopt that come into these walls hungry to hear from God it will transform your worship experience if you walk through the doors and I had to be at church again I said no I can't wait to hear what God has to say I need God to say something to me I've had an interesting week I'd like to know how God's going to interpret the week he just gave me what does it mean for my I want to hear from God You approach it that way, it makes all the difference in the world. So spiritual renewal has to do with re-engaging with the Bible. It has to do with renewing your enthusiasm for worship. I'm so glad you were worshiping enthusiastically this morning. Let me read. Uh, This is what happened in Nehemiah. Chapter 8, verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of the people. And when they saw him open the book, (coughs) they all rose to their feet. Now you may have wondered why sometimes in churches they say we're going to open the Bible and the people stand when they read the word of God. This is why. It comes from this verse right here in your Bible. And so they open the Bible. They're so hungry and respectful of the word of God at this moment. It's like the president came into the room. It's like we're going to hear. It's like God walked into the room. And we're going to honor him. for. That was where they were mentally at this moment. Wanting to hear from God. So we open the Bible and everybody stood to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord. So we have a praise service happening. So he's praising the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted what they chant. Now, you may not have grown up in church, and you don't know about amen and amen. It just sounds like, you know, something very churchy. Amen and amen means so be it. It means let it be. It means yes, I agree, yeah, that, what she said, (laughs) what he just said, yeah, that, amen. Uh, uh, When Rush Limbaugh was alive and on the air, uh, 
his uh, callers would call in, and they would always say, the first thing they would say to him is, man, it's so good to talk to you, Rush. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it got to be where it was just, we're taking up too much airtime with the caller praising Rush Limbaugh. So it got to be when you would answer the phone, he'd say, it's Rush Limbaugh, you're on the air. They would just say, hey, Rush, mega dittos. Does anybody know what I'm talking about right now? Dittos. What are they saying? What he just said before and what they said before and what they said before. We don't have time for take up all the airtime with just your great rush. So let's get right to the question. Mega dittos. What I want to know is, and they'd ask Russ a question and start talking to him. Now, that, that's kind of what amen is. Mega dittos. If you feel like you like that better in the middle of the service, just shout out, yeah, mega dittos. Right, we'll all know. What's happening, though, is someone is leading in the word, presenting the word of God, and somebody is saying, yeah, that. Yeah, I agree with that. We should do that. If that's what God said, let's try that and see if it might bless us as a people and bless our families and bless our children and bring us health and bring us prosperity and bring the rains and bring the crops and bring security and bring peace and bring prosperity. God said, do this. Yeah, let's try that. Amen and amen. That's what they're saying. So, now again, you want to time your amens. <laughs> you know, if something negative happens in the sermon and somebody hits a squeaker of a note, that's not the right time to say, yeah, that was good. It wasn't good. Or the pastor misspeaks. Don't shout amen right there. But when you agree with what God is yes, that, dittos, right, amen, I agree. You got it. That's right. That's all that amen means. And so now they're up reading the word of God. They're, they're re-engaging in their enthusiasm for worship. Amen and amen as they lift up their... So let me ask you, why don't Baptists lift up their hands when they worship? I want to challenge you to start following the Bible, okay? Is that fair? Is that fair? You say it's not our tradition. Your tradition is to follow the Word of God. If the Baptists don't want to follow it, you're going to follow the Baptists, you're going to follow God. All right, let's follow God. You say, well, that makes me Pentecostal. Well, then be Pentecostal if they're more aligned with the Word of God. Or that makes me Methodist. Or if that, Okay, all I'm saying is, we're not following denominationalism here at Cornerstone. We're trying to follow the Word of God. And when we discover the Word of God says something, you know what the people shout? That's what they shout. Let's do it. So we're going to worship with our hands lifted. And they bowed down. And they worshiped with their faces to the ground. Now, I'd like to teach a whole lesson on the postures of worship and prayer. Um, if your worship life and prayer life gets boring, then do a walk about prayer. I can teach you how to do that. Uh, did any of you come on Wednesday nights when I led meditation prayer? Very different, wasn't it? Very relaxing, very soothing. Hour went by just like that. You know, it's a totally different experience. Sometimes you need to get on your face before God. Sometimes, it's probably not at work. Probably not in the cafeteria. You're not trying to make a statement about look at me. But maybe here in church or maybe at home, there's a time to go into your bedroom and shut the door. And say, everybody give me some time. I'm, I'm off the clock right now. And put your phone on silent and put your face down on the floor. And what's the yoga posture, Erica? Is it a happy baby? No, it's baby. A child pose. Child pose. Yeah. 
child pose. If you're a yoga person in the room, start downward dog, then get down to child pose and, you know, get on your face before God and say to God, God, this is as low as I can make myself. And I deserve to be a lot lower than this, but by your grace, you've made me your child. And God, you have exalted me up to the family of God, and my home is heavenly, and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. But God, I just wanted to humble myself and get down on my knees and say, I know where my place is, but I know you've exalted me to be. Just talk it out with God. Sometimes the posture makes all the difference in your worship. And so in a moment, they got hands up. They're shouting amen. They're all enthusiastic. And then a little bit later, they're down on their faces worshiping God, and, and, and they're bowing uh, down. And uh, the people were so enthused. That, that's what I'm seeing from the Word of God. And I just want to say this to you. Whenever we worship God, worship is always to be an exciting atmosphere for us. It's something that got messed up in your church tradition. Now, we got many tr different traditions here. Whether you come from a Catholic background, a Methodist background, Church of Christ background, Baptist background, Wesleyan, whatever. One of the things we lost in our American church's traditions is some of this enthusiasm. Okay? You must, biblically, worship is not a solemn experience. Worship is an enthusiastic experience where everybody, the worshipers are fully engaged. Now, if you come from our traditions, you've got baggage, though. And you, it's hard to let go of that baggage. So I'm going to try to lovingly say to you, in my tradition, they would say, well, if you start living your hand, you're getting all charismatic and out of control. Listen, and so that record plays on a loop in my head. And I, I have a hard time getting that out of my head, even though I can clearly see what the Word of God says I should be doing. So I want to say, as your pastor to our congregation, we are not in danger of becoming a congregation of howling fanatics. We are in danger of becoming so lukewarm and lackadaisical that we no longer get excited about God. So let's make sure we understand which danger it is we're facing. We're not going to get out of control and go crazy as a congregation. We're going to be swinging from the raptors in here. Uh, I doubt it. I know you and I know me, and I just don't think that's going to happen. What I think might happen, though, is we could turn these passages off and say, God, we're not interested in this kind of enthusiasm when we come to worship you. And we could get very lukewarm, and we could get very subdued, and very stoic, and we could lose some of our passion in worship. Let me remind you several things about worship. Worship is not coming to watch professionals give a performance. That's a concert. You are not the audience in a worship service. God is the audience. You are the worshiper. You are the performer. You are the worshiper. God is our audience. You say, well, these people stand up here just to lead you to worship God. They're just leading the way and giving you a little, they're just pouring a little fuel on the revival fire so that you can open your heart and be free and express yourself to God and worship God and let your praise flow Remember, God is the audience for all of us. You are not the audience for these people. Their mission is clear. Lead you to worship God. And by the way, we'd rather have ten disciple makers on the platform who know the mission of God and are pursuing the mission of God than ten paid professionals who don't make disciples. You may say, well, every once in a while, Somebody will hit a note. Yeah, they will. 
And tonight they'll be at their kitchen table with their disciples memorizing the Word of God. To us, staying focused on the mission is more important than hiring the professional voice. Would you rather be led to worship God by people who don't make disciples or led to worship God by people who understand the mission? A lot of people don't understand us still here at Cornerstone. That's the way we think. So bear with us. We're just volunteers giving it our best shot, okay, <laughs> to lead people in worshiping Almighty God. I, I just want you to get a little bit fired up about coming to the house of God on Sunday. David said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. It ought to be a refreshing moment for you every week. Uh, let me give you a third thing about relighting some revival and renewing yourself spiritually. I would say this to you, let someone help you. Uh, experiencing spiritual renewal is not always a solo project. You need someone in your life who will walk alongside you and help you stay engaged, help you relight the fires. Nehemiah 8.8, 8, they read from the book of the law and they clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. Now, here's the big thing about engaging with the Word of God. It's not enough to read the Word of God. Somebody's got to explain it to you. And model it for you for it to come alive in your life. You say, well, you're a pastor. Yeah, I love to call others and say, let's come together. I'm going to preach on this. Let me hear your voice on this. I love listening to other voices before I get ready to do this. Because it's even helpful for me. It's helpful for all of us. It's not enough to read the Word of God. If I preach it and you don't understand it, I have failed you as your pastor. My mission is not to, you know, preach an eloquence. It's preach something that's understandable. The highest compliment ever paid to me is when I walk out that door and somebody brings their child over. I remember when Roman was just a little boy and Jenny brought him out there and said, hey, Roman wants to talk to you for a minute. Roman's talking to me about the sermon I just preached. The highest compliment I ever paid is when you were just a child at the time, Roman, not, not a young man, but when, when a child says, Pastor, you said this morning and I exactly what i said exactly what god said the greatest compliments prayed uh, paid to jesus were that jesus talked in such a way that the common people heard him gladly it says he could take the message from god and package it in a parable or package it in a story or package it about farmers and birds and cows and and he could package the story in such a way about bread and about water he could package it in such a way that the people could understand what god was trying to communicate with them not only was ezra proclaiming the word of god but there are people in the text who are, who, he has a group of spiritual parents around him who are explaining the Word of God in small groups to the people so that they can understand what's being said. Let me read verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. I love this. They celebrated spiritual growth. Cornerstone should always celebrate spiritual growth. If nothing else, I read these verses this week and said we need to have more parties around here. They celebrated spiritual growth and they threw a we understand the Bible party. That's what it's happening right here. They sent gifts, they made food, they invited people over, they had a big uh, dance and a hoedown. Who knows what they did, but it's a party because they said we, we hear the word of God, we understand. 
We, we got our mission clear. We've heard from God. That feels right, and that's what we're going to try to do. What do you want to do? feels like we should have a party. And they had a party. When you understand the Bible, then it begins to transform your life. Experiencing transformation is something that Cornerstone is committed to. We don't just design the ministry here to just do something every Sunday to get us on down. No, we're trying to get God's people to experience spiritual transformation. You will know God is transforming you because transformation will produce tears. So, verse 9, then Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, the Levites who were instructing the people, said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord your God, because they're all crying now, do not weep, do not mourn, do not weep, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Let me see if I can characterize this. When you hear the word of God, it'll bring, the word of God will bring you into confrontation with your sin. That's one thing the word of God does. And the reason... If you're ever skittish about getting in the Word of God, it's because you're afraid what you're going to read might be going against what you, what you live. I mean, you might be living contrary to the Word of God. And we're afraid if we get in there, we might say, oh, I'm going to make some changes, and that's going to be hard, and I'm going to have to change some things in my life. What happened is when they read the Word of God, the people began to be confronted with all the things they didn't do. They hadn't been keeping the feasts. They hadn't been keeping the Sabbath. They haven't been living uh, as a separated people unto God according to the Mosaic law. And when it says you got to eat this and you got to dress like this and you got to come and you got to Saturday is for worship and, and all these feasts, they, they had not been doing any of that for decades, for generations. And so they're like, really? That's what the Bible says we're supposed to be doing? Our parents and us haven't been doing any of that stuff. And Ezra and Nehemiah are like, yeah, I know. And that's why you went into bondage. And now you're out, so what are you going to do about it? And they're like, well, we're going to do what God said. And so there's tears running down their face. Let me just ask you a very personal question. Don't answer out loud. When was the last time that you shed a tear over your own condition? When was the last time that you were confronted with a sin in your life and that was so grievous to you that you had hurt God and you weren't doing what God said you should do that you got emotional about that? That's kind of what transformation does. Those tears help water some of the seeds of transformation in our lives. And when the people had mourned sufficiently, it's not a downer. Watch what happens. Nehemiah then says to the people, wait, I see a lot of tears right now. All right, you've mourned sufficiently. Let me ask you a question. Have you asked forgiveness? Yes, okay. Did God promise forgiveness when you repent? Okay, then dry your eyes and let's get up and celebrate and worship. Now it's time to stop crying. I'll say it to you from a New Testament context. Jesus didn't come to you and say, I came to bring you death and, and despair and discouragement and depression. He said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. I came that goodness might overcome evil through your life. Jesus didn't come to bring you sorrow. He came to bring you joy unspeakable and full of joy. And transformation produces joy. So you might find you'll shed a tear one day, but the tears won't last. God will dry the tears, and then the joy will come into your life. Watch what happens in verse number 10. And Nehemiah continued. He said, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods. Well, this is already sounding like good news, isn't it? Go and celebrate with some rich food and some sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have prepared nothing. This is a sacred day before the Lord. Don't be dejected. Don't be sad. 
Here's the words of your song, Jeremy. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is nothing that makes a church any stronger than the joy of the Lord. So you know what they did? Can you guess at this point? They had another party. Go and prepare another party. I'm thinking they have a lot more parties in the Old Testament than we have. Maybe we need more parties around here. What are we going to celebrate? I understand the word of God. My disciples are growing. I'm trying to follow Christ, and it's not easy, but I'm surrounded by people who get me, and they're on the same journey. Just have a party. Just have a we get you party and a we get the Bible party and a the joy of the Lord is my strength party. And you don't need a, much of a reason when you're a child of God to celebrate. It's all around you. Just grab a hold of something, gather some friends, uncork something, roast something on the grill, and everybody have a good time and celebrate the goodness of God that he's bringing into your life. This is the characteristics of God's people. Transformation produces some tears. Transformation produces some joy. Listen, when this is over, they, they go out and get on the walls they've just built and they march around the walls singing and dancing and praising God and singing songs of praise. The whole city just seems to erupt continuously now. It breaks out in celebration and joy and singing and praising God and eating rich food and drinking sweet drinks and everybody's celebrating. Now, if I wasn't from this place and I'm watching this, I'd be saying, I'd like to go see what it, how you get to be a citizen of this city. This seems to be an interesting place to live. It's the live music capital of the Middle East. It's the party capital of is the city of the, of the Middle East. These people are happy and joyous and singing. And I hear instruments and shouts and happy voices and children uh, dancing in the streets. I'd like to be a part of this community. Is anybody getting the gist here of this? And whatever we're doing here needs to send the vibe to our community when they look at us, they would say, I'd like to be a part of that community. This seems like a group of people that are a fun group of people. A group of people that I'd like to hang out with, that I'd like to do life with. And that transformation, lastly, will produce obedience. Verse 14. They found written in the law that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. This is describing what's called in the Bible the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And during this feast commanded by the law, they would leave their homes. They would build, we call it a tent, a, port, a temporary shelter out of, out of, out of uh, lean-to, uh, like you would see on a survival show on TV. A little booth made of limbs and sticks and palm branches. And they'd make a little booth, and they'd dwell in that booth outdoors during this season for a period of time. They would leave the comforts of home and go live out in the outdoors it's, it's a strange holiday to me, in my thinking. It's kind of like 4th of July meets Easter. If you could take those two holidays and slam them together and say, we're going to go out with a picnic basket and some fireworks, and we're going to celebrate God, that's, kind of, you know, that's what's, because they, weren't a, they were a people scattered with no home. And they're supposed to remember that. But now God has brought them into this walled city with the temple and all of these nice things and safety and security. And so to remember, they were to keep the feast. Now let me sum up. I'm right at the end now. They didn't quite understand this and they hadn't seen their parents do it or their grandparents do it. This hadn't been done in forever. So they're hearing this from the word of God and they're saying, really? This is what it means to be religious? <laughs> we're going to go on a religious camp out? That's what the Bible says to do. So they say, okay, let's do it. 
let's have a party. So they, you know, so now they're having a party out on the hills, camped out in booths. Here's all I want to say to you in closing. You may not understand everything God asks you to do. But transformation will produce obedience in your life. And when you obey God, it results in more transformation. And it kind of gets to be on a loop where you do what God tells you to do, and you may not understand every aspect of it, but you begin to do it. It's like the tithing thing. You're like, listen to me clearly. I spoke about money last week if you weren't here last week, but it'll never make sense on paper. But you start doing, honoring God with the first of your increase. And you and your spouse set a number and you start giving. Listen, I, I, I could stay on this for a few minutes because I'm so impressed with some of the people of this congregation. We have some 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 year olds in this church who their giving record is as consistent as the sun coming up in the morning. I am so proud of you. You start your adult life like that and you just wait and see what God does with you. That's all I want to say. You do what God says and you watch what God will do to honor your obedience to his word. That obedience and transformation are connected together. And that brings us to a present moment now. This week, in our country, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. It is always a time for us to reflect on what God has done for you. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It's very biblical. It's very David. Giving is not always about money. David said in one place, the offering that I will give you is something else. It's verbal. Or the offering is a broken and contrite heart. The offering I'm going to ask you to give in this invitation this morning is not money. The offering I'm going to ask you to give in this invitation is thanksgiving. I'm going to ask everybody to find a place this morning where you can be alone with God and take two or three minutes and say, God, my offering to you in this few minutes is my gratitude and my thanks. And then you find the language from your heart to offer that up to God. Our lives are transformed when we obey our Father. If you'll start obeying your Father You will not be the same person a year from now. He will change your life. Little by little over the coming weeks and months, God will change you into a better version of you that looks more like Jesus Christ, God's Son. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus this morning, I want to challenge you today to call upon him. We fast forward this story several hundred years and One morning, they nailed Jesus Christ to a cross outside the wall of Jerusalem. As Jesus Christ hung on that cross, if we've got the place right where they think it is, the city gate, the wall is right there looking straight ahead. A highway running right there in front of the cross, going out to Damascus and then into the city of Jerusalem. If they've got the place fixed right, It means that several hundred years later, Jesus Christ hung on a cross, staring straight ahead at that Jerusalem wall. I wonder when the devil stirred the people up and they began to taunt Jesus 
If you're the son of God, come off the cross. <laughs> he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. I wonder if Jesus looked at that wall and thought of Nehemiah and said, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Don't distract me. And he hung there until the afternoon until he finally cried out with his last voice. It's finished! Now the celebration can begin. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. If you've never received him, then I urge you in this invitation. You, you come, there will be help right here. Don't be embarrassed. We've all done this in a church. You come and take the hand of one of these deacons and say, pray with me. I need to receive Christ this morning as my Lord and my Savior. I need to walk out those doors knowing my sins are forgiven. And somebody's going to be right here to help you this morning. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's have a moment of reflection now and prayer before we go to our homes. If you're looking for a church that's built upon the Word of God, you found it. God has answered your prayer. If you're looking for a group of people who will walk with you and do life with you and walk the Christian walk and model it, not preach at you, but model it, you found it. This is the place. This is the place. There's some wonderful people this morning going through our Discover Cornerstone class and some in this room that we're praying you will in the coming weeks take those next steps and be a part of this covenant family of God. In this invitation, this is what I'm going to challenge you. Offer up an offering right now. An offering of thanksgiving. Don't wait till Thursday to eat turkey. Right now is our thanksgiving to God. I'm going to ask you to stand very quietly. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just stand to your feet. It's easier to move around if you want to come and kneel at an altar this morning. Offer this morning an offering. Say, God, I bow before you this morning. You gave us the beautiful child we prayed for. You gave us the promotion we asked for. God, you gave me the healing that I asked for physically when I was sick. God, you gave me the peace that I needed when I was distressed. We have so many things to be thankful for. Just dig deep into your mind right now and just let them flow out one after another. And offer up your own thanksgiving to God. It's an offering. It's precious to Him. This is very precious to God. An offering of thanks. Great tradition for us here at Cornerstone. Begin Thanksgiving week with an offering of thanks. It'll make our feasting much better this week if we start with thanks right now. If you need someone to pray with you, you come. If you're troubled, if you need healing, if you need someone to pray over you because of something going on in your life, come. We have a lot of church leaders right here. They're just at arm's length right here this morning. They'd be glad to pray with you. Just as the Bible says in the book of James, come and let the elders of the church pray with you. We are glad to do that in any service. 
Let me challenge you now before I close with this. If you're still praying, listen to this. Maybe when it comes to God, you're just kind of meh. You've lost that spark. If you've lost that spark, I've given you some very practical things from the Word of God this morning. But for a moment right now, just ask God to light the fire. Just, just very simply bow your head and say, God, I'm just a little lukewarm and lackadaisical about my spiritual mission. Relight the fire that I used to have. God, light the passion again. Give me the enthusiasm to pursue Christ and the mission of God. Lord, light the fire in my heart for spiritual things, for a pursuit of the Holy God. And He will. If you want that, He will. He's never far from you, and if you just reach towards Him, He'll reach right down, and He'll meet you. Father, we bow before you this morning, and Lord, you've heard our prayers of thanksgiving going up all over this congregation. God, we want to honor you and acknowledge that you're the source of all of our blessing. God, you're great. You're good. You're worthy of all of our praise and all of our enthusiasm. And God, let me confess our sins corporately. Forgive us when we are lukewarm. We know, we know that's not what you want from us, and that's not what we want from ourselves. We want to do better for you. God, pour a spirit of enthusiasm in us, a hunger and a passion for the things of God. God, uh, help us to be on mission. Lord, let us be that focused person that we were talking about. Lord, some have never made a disciple. May this be their season coming up now. As we end this year and go into the next, God, may this be the time. Lord, when you'll engage us in that mission. Father, thank you for all that you've done in our hearts this morning. Thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that you put in front of us. God, protect your people as they move around this week, as we visit family, as people are traveling. God, bring us all back safely. Lord, let us enjoy the feast. Let us enjoy the celebration. And let your people be the most joyous, happy people on planet Earth. This is our prayer as one family. In Jesus' name, amen.